Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrett. I'll be joined in just a moment by Simon Foster. If you've come in late, this is the podcast where we watch things, movies, TV shows, and other related screens hype things, and then we talk about them on a podcast. It is, look, it's a bit revolutionary for a podcast, so, you know, try to keep up. This is all I'm saying. Now, Simon generally tries to be a bit more prepared than I am when we come to this podcast. So every week I come to it and find there's a rundown that he's created that I usually look at for the very first time when I press record on the podcast. And I'll see things like yeah. he's got here intro and I've never paid attention to the intro at all up until this moment, but he said intro, the Logies are Sydney bound for the first time since 1986. And for the first time on channel seven, since 1995 and one, if it's yep. the first time since 1995, that might be the last time I watched the Logies with any regularity. Um, and two, I don't know who's interested in this. Let's play the theme song. This is not like TV only battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. Simon, power, friend, co-host, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Dan Barrett, and hello, Screen Watchers far and wide. I'm a little bit disappointed with your very Brisbane-centric point of view of the world. To get the Logies back in Sydney is a huge deal for the state, and the uh, people who will earn employment and the, the working-class people of Sydney who'll get... Um, He'll get hours of, of free overtime, of, of overtime with the Logies hitting our shores, um, particularly the people who work for Channel 7, I think is a huge boon for the state. So take your Logie bashing somewhere else, Mr. Barrett. We're thrilled to have Australia's premier awards ceremony here in the Harbour City. Look, I will admit I hadn't considered the jobs aspect. There will be cocaine dealers who are all, you know, jumping with joy at an extra <laughs> night of some fairly decent, robust sales. Yeah, yeah, we're going to look the other way for like the, the two weeks before the Logies just so they can get all the white powder into the city. And then it's party time down by the harbour. No, yeah, no, I, no. I must admit I haven't watched the Logies for many, many years and don't consider it a, uh, a high point in the cultural calendar. But, you know, it's good to have it back. We couldn't get the F, we couldn't, the Melbourne still got the, the motor racing and Perth's bidding for the state of origin football and a whole lot of other stuff happens elsewhere. All we've got is sunshine, so it's good to have the Logies. Look, you can have your Logies. I just know the world will be watching us in, what, 10 years' time when there's an Olympics for about a week and a half? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Who'll ever forget that time that Brisbane got the Olympics and everybody went, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone remember that time where Brisbane got the Olympics and all the TV networks, or well, the TV network that got it and a radio station, the media reporting it were like, oh my God, it's such a boon for free-to-air television, thinking, well, wait a sec, who's going to be watching free-to-air television in like 2032? Like, I know. what's the deal there? Anyway, just, just some thoughts. Simon Foster, we do reviews and discussions about all things TV and television here on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, movies. We'll be doing some of those. On the docket this week, I've got two TV programs that I'm looking at. I'll be taking a look at the season two return of Perry Mason. It's been quite a few years since the season one of Perry Mason. So long, in fact, this may as well be a brand new TV program. But we'll talk about that in the reviews. I'm also going to take a look at a program that you've never heard of before, and I suddenly had barely known it existed. It's called Will Trent, 
And that's a Disney Plus show on ABC in the US and Disney Plus here, and I'm sure other international places as well. You've got some movies, including a fairly big title, and then two things that most people have never heard of before and will never hear of outside the context of this podcast. I would suggest that, of, well, yes, the big title is Scream 6, the latest in the Scream franchise. That's hitting wide release from Paramount Pictures this week. The Oscar-nominated documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, I'm going to be giving a bit of a rant to, so hopefully people will get along and see it. And then there's this odd little duck called 65 from Sony Pictures in wide release. It looks like it's meant to be a big, huge blockbuster, but they didn't preview it. Um, for us critics, which is always a bit of a dire sign. I raced out and saw it this morning as we record this podcast, and I've got some fairly choice words to say about it. Simon Foster, I had a few free hours this morning, and I thought to myself, I think I'm going to go and see Scream 6. And I thought, no, I'm going to go and see 65. And then I didn't do either. Instead, I just kind of played on my computer for a little <laughs> bit, and <laughs> here we are. Uh, but anyway, I'll be fascinated to hear what you have to say. It stinks. Simon Foster, do you mind if we go straight to Scream 6? And I have to ask a question before you give your little synopses. Scream 6, does it have like some mm. sort of a subtitle, like Scream Harder or anything like that? Mm, it's got the New York New Rules is the tagline for the film, which I think is pretty clever. Let's have a look at a bit from it. You got a problem here, guy? So we've come back around to the sixth film in the Scream franchise that dates all the way back to 1996. And I remember what a thrill it was in the, to see the, the opening sequence of Wes Craven's Scream. Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Drew Barrymore dies in a wildly spectacular fashion that took the whole uh, viewing audience by surprise. Simon, what now I haven't got yet? into the movie yet. I've been holding on to that one and she dies. What? What? Yeah. Yeah, and, and and for those of you who for those of you who remember fondly the original Scream when Drew Barrymore does die at the beginning of it last night at the preview screening of Scream Six there was a drag queen Drew Barrymore who reenacted her own death at, out in the front of the cinema before the screening of Scream Six so it's obviously had some kind of deep cultural impact for that moment to to be made alive for my bewildered eyes. At Scream 6, or Scream in general, is now known for this opening sequence where usually a uh, voice, which sounds like a weird sort of AM, FM radio guy uh, on a phone, um, harasses a woman who ends up getting stabbed. That woman in the new movie is played by Aussie actress Samara Weaving, who's very talented and makes the most of this very small part. Then we just get into the uh, plotting of Scream 6, which is essentially a continuation of Scream 5, which came out only a year ago. They've turned this film around very quickly. Um, the lovely uh, young acting couple of Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega, who play the sisters in this film, they've moved to New York City, where they're both attending college. 
Um, and a year after the, the happenings of Scream 5, we now find them uh, facing off against Ghostface in the Big Apple. Um, but this time, of course, there's more Ghostfaces because it's Halloween. The mask's based on the movie Stab, which is the in-film reference to the original um, goings-on in the Scream franchise, has become a huge cultural figure, just like Ghostface in the movie we're watching now. So there's this whole meta beat going on, which has always been the Scream franchise's sort of reason for being. Um, we remember in the first film when Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich did their little riff with Jamie Kennedy about the, the horror beats and horror tropes. Well, now it's all about franchise filmmaking. And uh, Jasmine Savoy Brown, who plays Mindy Meeks Martin, does the big scene where she explains the rules of franchise movie going and how all bets are off and any character, there's no value in legacy characters anymore, so they're just as likely to get stabbed as anyone else in the cast. Um, which sort of opens the film up to a lot of avenues that it doesn't explore. It really just becomes a slasher film involving the um, three main characters, uh, as the last few have been. But in doing that, it sticks very closely to what Scream does best, um, inventive slasher moments, um, some cool bits of humour, um, and by the way, the audience reacted to this last night. Ghostface has got a, made a real cultural stamp. He's a, a legitimate pop culture icon, probably the, the most beloved serial killer slash horror movie character of the moment. So, um, I don't think it breaks any new ground, Scream 6. Um, but it, what it does, it does well. It does what we've come to expect from the Scream franchise and it's in wide release through Paramount Pictures. Yeah, this is a film franchise I've really grown up with. So it came out in 1996, yeah. which I was 16 when the film came out. So I was the right uh, age, like fine. the same age yeah. of the characters. Okay, right age to be watching this. And also the right age to have watched a lot of 1980s slasher movies on VHS to be really up with the lingo and be able to just keep up with the cultural essence of it all. Hit film number two, and I was right there with it. My film knowledge had kind yeah. of progressed that little bit further, and I was very much there for the meta conversations about what it means to be in a horror movie sequel going forward. The third one, because I was a bit of a Kevin Smith fan for all that time as well, uh, there was the Kevin Smith sort of influence through on that Scream 3. When I reached Scream 4, uh, I don't remember what year that came out. Uh, Simon, I don't know if you can rattle that off the top mm. of your head. Uh, I know yeah, Emma Roberts was in it, so I'm going to say it was like yeah. maybe sort of like 2008-ish. Mm, I, I think a bit less, probably around the three or four, but yeah. Yeah, I reckon it's somewhere between the two. But yeah, it suddenly came out around then. And it sort of was a real line in the sand moment for me where I watched that and thought, mm. you know what? I don't really need to see films where people are brutally murdered like that anymore. Ah, okay? okay. But then cut to two years ago when Scream 5 comes out. Okay, I was, you know, suddenly in my late 30s, getting into my 40s at that point, and I was ready to see teenagers being brutally mutilated again. So really, I've come full circle with this as a franchise. But I will say that the idea of Scream 4, okay, has really been resonating with me as I think about my interest in seeing this movie. Because the one thing that this movie has been selling itself on is that the Sidney Prescott character, played by Nev Campbell, is mercifully no longer in the like, film. Okay, like she's decided mm -hmm. to step away from the franchise, which should have happened, I don't know, about four movies ago. Like, I don't understand why these characters have continued to come back. Nothing felt more stale than watching Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox back on screen together. And keep in mind, if there's a Nev Campbell movie, I'd be there for it. If there's a Courtney Cox movie, I'm there for that as well. I didn't want to see them back in the Scream films. Like, come on. Like, sure, there's better things they could be yeah. doing with their time. It just felt very musty. But what I've been told about this new one is that there's no Nev Campbell, but Hayden Patsoneri, 
um, the cheerleader from Heroes. Yeah, Panettiere. Yeah, is back. And I'm like, well, what film was she in? And apparently it was Scream 4. I've got no recollection of this movie at all. I don't remember other than the feeling I had, which is that I was over the idea of seeing teenagers brutally murdered. Like, other than that, I don't remember that movie in the slightest. And I kind of feel that we've reached this point with the franchise now where it's sort of really leaning on the idea that we do have this, you know, for me, lifelong um, relationship with this franchise as though I'm supposed to care as opposed yeah. to just something which is a bit of cheap, frivolous fun that comes out every couple of years. There is a, a real element of fan service about Screen 6, and what I found at last night's screening was, and, and what I've come to understand, is that the fans very much fit into specific iterations of the Screen franchise. There's both you and I with the original Scream and Screen 2, um, the, the Drew Barrymore years, uh, and then there's the early Orties, the, the four, uh, um, three and four, which had their own sort of collection of characters, which is where the Hayden Panettiere character comes from. And now there's this new iteration, which is, has got its own bunch of fans, uh, which I, I too, like you, have sort of come back around to, mainly because Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega are in it. I think they're terrific on screen, and, and it, there's a bit of inventiveness about it that I quite react to. But um, when Hayden Panettiere as Kirby appears in this latest film, I, I was the same. I was like, wait a minute, wasn't she like a minor character who didn't really do much or am I just forgetting the role she played or were those films just not such a big deal to me? Um, there is some fun moments in this where all three sort of generations of, of actors from the Scream franchise have their own moments with each other and it's and it's pretty cool to watch, to, to see them talk about horror films and how horror movies have transformed over the last, you know, 30 odd years since the last the first Scream came out. Um but uh, the fan service comes thick and fast in this movie. Uh, the more you get out of the, the the screen franchise and have really dug into the mythology of it, the more you'll find in this. So in that regard, I guess it works. Um, as a slasher movie, it's just pretty good. It does what it sets out to do, and that's that's all it'll need to open big for the weekend and probably ensure a screen seven. I mean, this is the other thing that kind of rankles me a little bit with it and where I felt a real disconnect when I watched the last one. It just kind of feels, and like maybe this is my own movie going, but it feels to me that we haven't really had slasher movies in the same way that we, that we're still part of the consciousness when the original Scream came out. It kind of feels that mm. like all the slasher films we've seen in the last like 10, 15 years, most of them are just retreads of uh, like 80 slasher films. Like it's really extending franchises, like the yeah. Halloween movies, obviously pre-existing and Friday the 13th and the Evil Dead yeah. films and all that. It kind of feels like there hasn't been slasher i mean there's only been high profile horror movies but there haven't been slasher movies that i feel that new generations of movie fans can call their own so as we start watching these new teenagers who are all talking about the rules of the slasher movie it feels so disconnected from the youth of today mm. and when i was watching the last one it introduced the first sort of um you know lgbtiq character that i think the franchise has had to date um i don't think there'd been a character surprise for her in it um, and presumably that actress is back for the new film because I quite liked yeah, her in the is. last one. I know she lived, so that was probably a pretty good thing. Sorry, spoiler alert. So she lived in the last one. <laughs> Apparently she's in a new one, which is pretty cool. Uh, so I'll be there for her because I thought she was awesome. Uh, but like, it kind of strikes me that maybe it's time to say goodbye to slasher films because they're not relevant to this audience, but maybe talk about something which is relevant to the audience where it feels like Scream is so much about identity and about the embrace of identity, about shedding identity, which there's no greater theme that really applies to the current sort of crop of young people. Why not play with that? And mm. I mean, 
Well, Scream is very much about trying to work out the identity of the person behind the mask because it changes in every movie and they've always got a different motivation. They've always got a different sense of self yeah. and rationale for doing it. Like, why not play into that and just jettison this ridiculous idea that we need to talk about the rules of slasher films because 16-year-old kids do not give a fuck about them. Yeah, look, you make great points. I don't disagree with that. The only point I'd make to that is I'd almost go the other way and say is Scream itself as a and the concept that it embraces of sort of looking at the the slasher film lore and that very slasher film lore, as you say, has faded over time and and doesn't quite have the importance that it, it once did. It once did. Is there some way that we can create? A, a screen movie that doesn't then also dwell in the modern teen's um, need or desire to define identity? Is it just worth going back in with a good old slasher film story? Because one of the things that started to irk me about this film was every character had to have some redemptive arc, that had to have some sort of um, a moment where they find trueness in their self and goodness or, 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 or terror in themselves or some sort of moment that gives them a reason for being the person that they are. And it became a little bit heavy-handed in terms of a, the burden to place on a, a slasher movies. But I don't disagree with everything you say. I think there's a an absolute need to, to refresh um, the genre going forward. Look, I mean, maybe even the way to play it is just be a little bit winking at a very knowing audience, which is just have them play completely into the tropes of 1980 slasher films and don't knowingly wink at the audience, just embrace them and just retread those same tropes. Mm. Like the audience will get what you're doing without you having to make reference to mm. what you're doing on screen. And instead maybe find like another thematic sort of a way into telling stories about teenagers. Because what they're doing at the moment doesn't really make a lot of sense. And the horror films from the last will say 20 years, don't really play around with teenagers as much as they do, I guess, maybe people in their 20s a little bit more. And, like, they're all yeah. very sort of supernatural stories and always about people finding their ways into adulthood in a way that the teen films don't really quite represent that. There's there's a disconnect, and I think they really need to solve it because every time I come into these films now, I just kind of feel as though it's just content being churned through the meat grinder and not necessarily in the best way. Not in a sore kind of a way. It's exactly... <laughs> It's called Scream 6 in wide release. I want to hear you talk about Perry Mason Season 2. After an extensive manhunt, Raphael and Matteo Gallardo were arrested for the murder of Brooks McCutcheon. These savages have no place in our civilized society. And I will not rest until justice is done. My name is Luisa Gallardo. My nephews were arrested. They aren't killers. You want to help us? Since Perry Mason season one, I've had three different jobs. I've seen my wife get pregnant with a child who's now 18 months old. The child, not my wife. Um, I've moved into state. I've bought a house. I remember reviewing season one on my previous podcast, which I know is only because you and I, Simon, we're two and a bit years into doing this podcast. So all this is to say, it's been quite a long time since season one of Perry Mason. So watching this new batch of episodes, it was a bit weird because I only have a very minimal recall as to exactly what happened in that first season, beyond being kind of annoyed that he only became a lawyer about two-thirds of the way into that first season, and the way they transitioned him from private detective to lawyer was incredibly ham-fisted. But the good news is, this brand new season, okay, basically you don't need to really remember anything from season one. It's kind of like they've given the entire series a bit of a brand new, like just a big reset button. We're kind of starting scratch. 
They'll talk about things that happened in the past, but you don't really need to pay attention to that. You can stare at your phone for a minute or two and you're not really going to be too lost in the overall story arc of this. Okay, so the actual season, the plot of it has something to do with a criminal organization who've blown up a cruise ship in a too public fashion. The adult son in a family, who was the one that orchestrated the explosion on this cruise ship, he's got a very testy relationship with his mob boss father, and most of that relationship comes from the fact that the son isn't really great at the family business. And that son, I should say, is played by Tommy Dewey, who people may know from Casual, which is a really good underrated half-hour dramedy, which is streaming in Australia on Netflix. You can find it in the US on Hulu. I'm pretty sure it'll still be there. Uh, anyway, Perry Mason, he's been between seasons. He's made a decision to only focus on civil law, saying goodbye to criminal law after the harrowing events of the last season. Um, episode one's got him dealing with a supermarket owner who's suing a former employee for ripping off his intellectual property. And the supermarket owner is played by a very heavy Sean Aston, who we last saw on TV in Stranger Things. And that season of Stranger Things, I think, was prior to the season of Perry Mason I was talking about earlier. So it's been a while since I've seen Sean Aston on my screen as well. And if you think it sounds a little bit dull, that court case of the week, you're not wrong. Perry Mason agrees with you entirely. Okay, but that's kind of the crux as to what this is all about. Basically, the reason why he got into the law is has been stripped away from him to a certain degree, and now he's just trying to find his way back into it all. Uh, I... We'll say the new season, it's got new showrunners. They got rid of the old guys who I kind of thought produced a very dull, very ham-fisted uh, season of television. The new guys are the two guys that ran one of my favorite TV programs, The Nick. And if you enjoy the general vibe of The Nick and you enjoy the, uh, like just maybe the spirit of intent with The Nick, which was, it's not really a fast-paced drama by any means, but it's certainly a very rewarding drama. And if you spend a bit of time really sort of falling into the world, you'll latch into this world really nicely, which I certainly did by the end of this return episode. So I don't know I'm excited to be watching Perry Mason every week going forward, but I'm certainly fairly enthused. But I guess maybe the big question I have after thinking about where Perry Mason is and what I'm after from a Perry Mason drama, I can't help but feel this would be so much better if it was just rebooted by CBS instead of HBO. And this was just an lawyer story of the week, uh, you know, procedural drama. That would be so much more satisfying. And if we think about a TV environment where Poker Face has suddenly kicked off, where people are excited again about these episode of the week detective dramas, like this fits that bill really nicely. And if they approach in a really nice adult way and told adult stories with that classic Perry Mason theme song coming through and really plays to the strength as to what a broadcast TV drama is, this would be magnifique, Mwah! chef's kiss. Unfortunately, what we've got instead is just a fairly good rote HBO drama, which is fine. But if they announce at the end of this season that it's going to be the end of Perry Mason, I won't be necessarily be crying in his tears. Even so, I think I'm still going to be enjoying this for the next uh, like seven weeks, or however long the season is. Matthew Reese still the right person in the role. Um, I enjoy his acting on screen, but he can be a very sometimes mannered, sometimes. Uh, I enjoyed seeing him at the start of Cocaine Bear, uh, for those of you who've seen that by now. Um, still good as Perry Mason? Look, I mean, sure, but I also kind of feel he's a bit wasted in it. Like, he's, yeah. like I really like Matthew Reese, and I think that he's capable of so much more than just being dour. And that's kind of all that's really asked of him from this. Like, there's just an opportunity to... I guess an opportunity with Matthew Reese to really have him exhibit more than one personality trait. And that's not happening with the drama. And that's a bit of a shame, but the rest of the cast, I think are all really strong and fun and 
really just inhabit their roles really nicely to a point where I couldn't really imagine anyone else. Uh, one of my favorite things is watching Justin Kirk, who people might remember from Weeds back in the day, playing the uh, wayward um, brother-in-law, uh, you know, he's a bit of a ne'er-do-well. God, I like saying that out loud. Oh, and he's here playing uh, Berger, the opposing counsel. And that's always fun seeing him on screen. But outside of you that, know, I kind of just I wish want... Matthew Reese was somebody else and just doing something else. I, I want to just address this new phenomenon. Is, is it a new phenomenon maybe? Maybe just my sort of lesser TV viewing habits than you have, have missed out on this evolution. The, the huge gap between seasons of shows that you open this review with. I read during the week that... Um, Everyone's so excited because The Last of Us will, the next season of The Last of Us will be seen sometime in 2025 or late 2024. And I'm thinking, wow, that's such a, it's such a huge gap to be planning that far ahead. But it does seem to be de rigueur, dare I say, for, um, for, for the modern TV series. So. Look, and know. I'd say it hurts the shows. So they keep on, like, you yeah. know, there's the idea that you could just go and rewatch the first season before you watch the new season. But also, there's a lot of TV to watch, and I don't want to have to rewatch a season just so I remember what the new season's about, only because you've exactly. taken a year and a half between seasons. Uh, back yeah. in the day, The Sopranos and Mad Men kind of set the bar for this. But with both of those programs, it was never necessarily because the productions themselves couldn't keep to a year-long schedule. Uh, certainly with Mad Men, it was really just a matter of AMC were always sort of playing games as to whether they'd bring the show back or not. I think it was maybe yeah. two years in between seasons four and five of Mad Men. And they did use wow. that as an opportunity to sort of soft reset the show a little bit and uh, kind of give it a bit of a new energy. But the show was sort of heading in that mm -hmm. direction anyway, so it wasn't really a huge change for the show. Uh, but yeah, it just kind of... I don't know. I, every time that there's one of these massive gaps, it just means that I'm confused when I start watching it. And my enthusiasm for watching it is just that little bit less than it would be if it was just a year in between. Like, I remember back in the day of watching ER on a weekly basis, 23 episodes a year. You know, they didn't have like two years between that. That was an elaborate production. The Good Wife, that was probably the most recent broadcast network show that was doing this on a really big scale. They didn't take a year off in between yep. seasons. Like, you know, there's a way to keep your production schedule and still have like high quality television. And in this day and age, I don't know what Perry Mason's doing that makes it so overly complicated. Like a courtroom scene in Perry Mason is just as complex to film as a courtroom scene in any other given network drama. Like it's crazy sure. to me that it's taken this long. Perry Mason season two, HBO in the US and binge here in Australia. I'm going to have a look at a little documentary, which is one of the five up for the Oscar for best factual film. It's called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed from Mad Men Entertainment. It's in limited release. Photography is like a flash of euphoria and gave me a voice. Once I started sharing the work, it was really heavy resistance, especially from male artists and gallerists who said, this is in photography. Nobody photographs their own life. Dance, dance, dance. The photographer, Nan Golden, she's a major name in the art world. All the Beauty in the Bloodshed is about a woman named Nan Golden. She is uh, a world-famous photographer whose images from the late 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, of the New York City underground have become iconic, iconic images um, that captured a moment in time that will never be repeated. She found she would hang out with uh, the people like 
all the all the names you associate with the, the underground movement, the the um, uh, 15 Minutes of Fame guy and David Byrne, Andy Warhol is who I'm thinking of, and all those great sort of underground um, individuals who who uh, were synonymous with that time. That is a big chunk of what this documentary is about, and she recalls her moments living in the New York City underground and the shared apartments and the crazy times in her own voice. The other part of this documentary, and maybe the most fascinating part of this documentary, is that it is revealed that Nan Golden is a survivor of the opioid crisis in the US, um, found herself addicted to OxyContin in the early 80s, um, and fought hard to overcome that addiction and deals with it every day, um, to the point that she is now uh, an active uh, demonstrator against uh, Purdue uh, Pharmaceuticals and the Sackler family, all of whom uh, invest money into the American uh, museum scene and art gallery scene, of which she is a huge uh, contributor. So she has taken it upon herself uh, and, and along with other survivors of, of uh, opioid addiction to fight against the Sackler fortune, fight against the Sackler name and demand that their names be removed from as many galleries around the world as possible and that their monies be taken out of the arts community. Um, and so you have this amazing sort of two-tiered documentary which looks at this incredible artist who was a formative influence in the world of, of photography for, you know, upwards of four decades and this other uh, documentary that's, about a, a, an aging woman who has terrible addiction problems and who is fighting back not only against that addiction but against the people that caused the addiction. And it makes for great documentary filmmaking uh, made by Laura Petroyas. I hope I pronounced that correctly, who's made some amazing documentaries over the years, and this is one of her very best. Um, it's a really tight race, the Oscar uh, for best documentary this year. I've seen all but one of them and all of them are terrific movies which could have easily fitted into the best picture category if it wasn't separated away. And I think that's a good thing. I'm glad that they separate the documentary and the animated film away from just the the narrative features that go up for best picture because I think that um, in many regards, a lot of them are better movies. So all the beauty and the bloodshed is in limited release through Madman Entertainment. A better movie than Top Gun Maverick. How dare you, sir? How dare you? <laughs> I never said that. I never said exactly that. I would never, ever say that. I know no. our audience. It was all in there. It was all in there. Okay, look, let's talk about Will Trent, which is a new series that's streaming here in Australia on Disney Plus as of the last couple of days, but premiered all the way back in January on the US ABC network. Name? Special Agent Will Trent. Ooh, fancy. I just want to get on with my day. I rescued a dog. You folks rehome animals, so... Rehome. This is a no-kill shelter, right? I mean, mostly. What are you doing here? Get in. Murdered teenage girl. I need you to read the crime scene. I told him I'd bring my best. Look at you with your three-piece suit like every day's your wedding day. Yeah, on my funeral. Okay, Simon, I'm going to talk to you about Will Trent. First of all, have you ever heard of this program? Not until I read your hastily updated running sheet as of this morning. And I actually <laughs> did jump on just before this podcast and watch the first few minutes of Will Trent, the, the horrible, stabby, bloody opening sequence. Um, and apart from that, no, I, I had not heard of this at all. Did you enjoy that horrible, bloody, stabby sequence at the beginning? I was a little bit surprised at how bloody and, and icky it was because it certainly, you know, 
paints the murder scene as one of fairly graphic uh, viscera. But, um, yeah, I suppose that was okay. But, no, I didn't get into any of the investigation or anything that I suspect this, this show is about. Now, well, this is kind of the thing with it, Simon. So the opening, as you said, is very visceral. There's a lot of blood. It's a very uh, extreme opening for a broadcast TV network procedural. And I literally, like, paused it to see if it had come from the ABC network, which is what I thought it had from the U.S. And mm. it's really quite mature for a U.S. adult, uh, U.S., um, you know, network procedural. Mm. So, look, the premise of this one, it's based on a series of books by uh, Karen Slaughter, which I think is an amazing surname if you're going to be writing, <laughs> uh, like, a series of murder <laughs> mystery stories. Uh, reading the blurb here. Uh, you've got Special Agent Will Trent of the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. As a child, Trent was abandoned and forced to endure a harsh coming of age in Atlanta's overwhelmed foster care system. And now he's in a position to make a difference as a police officer. Uh, what's interesting with this show is that, yes, it is a procedural murder of the week program, but there's a lot of really dark texture taking place here. So there is the extreme viscera of some of the murder sequences. And admittedly, I've watched the next two episodes and neither of them really have anything that's as full on as the opening sequence, but at the same time, like thematically and just in terms of some of the actual sort of narrative choices, there's a lot of great, uh, like real darkness taking place. So you do have this character, Will Trent. And first of all, let's just address, this is a terrible name for a TV program. Like a really just shockingly awful name for a show. So it's try the, to it's the old man. It's the old man. Uh, po- uh, the old man um, podcast this week with Perry Mason and Will Trent. We're going with the classic <laughs> TV only names. No, exactly. Um, I kind of wish that they'd called it like Karen Slaughter's Will Trent because that'd be kind of fun, but it's not. Um, so you've got this guy Will Trent, and as the synopsis says, he was abandoned and went through like some really nasty stuff as a child. There's lots of insinuations that he may have been a molested child. Like you know, there's suddenly a lot going on. He's dyslexic, and so a lot of the show has him giving notes into a handheld tape recorder. So it's not quite as egregious as him doing a bit of uh, Norm Macdonald notes herself business that you might have seen in Dirty Work back in the day. And did anyone expect I'd make a Dirty Work reference as part of this? No. No one ever expects that. That's the magic of this podcast, Simon. But anyway, there's a bit of that business going on. Uh, He's got a on-again, off-again, girlfriend, kind of friend, kind of confidant, uh, played by Erica Christensen, who people would still only really remember from Swim Fan back in the day, but she's made appearance in things over the years. So yeah. she was regular in Parenthood, which is probably one of the more notable roles. Michael Douglas's Michael Douglas's daughter in Traffic. Yeah, that's where I first saw her yeah. all the way back in that movie. Yeah, look, absolutely. She's suddenly been consistently acting, but she's never really quite broken through. But she's really good in this. I'm yeah, uh, really quite taken with her in it. Uh, sorry, I should say uh, Ramon Rodriguez is the main character, the Will Trent, the titular Will uh, Trent. People would know him from, uh, gosh, what's he even been in? Uh, I remember him from uh, Battlefield Los Angeles, if that's the name of that film. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Back in the, the day. Soldiers. Yeah. Uh, he had like about six or eight episodes in one of the seasons of The Wire. Um, so he's suddenly been around, like people had known by face, even if you can't really quite pick it. Uh, but yeah, so the Erica Christensen character, she had also grown up in the um, orphanage with him. Okay, so she's got her own trauma, and that really becomes apparent as you start watching the second episode. Uh, some really dark stuff there. I don't quite want to tip the hat as to what's going on with that character, but like really suddenly stuff I never thought I'd see from a US network drama. Wow, um, it's, okay. It's, it's really quite something. Uh, also in this, in the first episode, you've got... Uh, there's a, sorry, in the first two episodes, it's a two-parter, 
Uh, you got a murder mystery case involving a uh, woman that's come home to find that possibly her daughter has been murdered. So she sees a body on the ground and then the possible attacker comes like lunging after her with a knife. But as Will Trent starts to investigate, you start to learn that not everything was as you may have thought in that opening sequence. And there's actually quite a bit more going on. But the father of the possible murder victim, as played by Mark Paul Gosler, who people remember from, as Zach Morris from uh, Saved by the Bell back in the day. Uh, Again, I think he's really quite good. Uh, there's quite a number of scenes where, you know, he certainly handles the dramatic pathos in this in a way that you may not necessarily really experienced if you saw him in either Saved by the Bell or Franklin and Bash. I don't know if he was Franklin or if he was Bash, but, you know, he was certainly yeah, one he, of them. He also went on to NYPD Blue, didn't he? Wasn't he? Didn't he become a partner in that? Uh, yeah, that was him, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was him. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, yeah, so he replaced Ricky Schroeder when he left that series. Because NYPD well, Blue, can, can you ever forget. really replace? Can you ever really replace Ricky Schroeder? <laughs> I mean, fair question. Fair question. But people forget NYPD Blue ran a incredibly long time. Yep. Not quite Law and Order SVU long, but still put in some years. Not quite Grey's Anatomy long, but it's still good. Oh, well, I think SVU's been running longer than Grey's Anatomy by about four or five years. That's probably true. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Um, so you find out as well that character has a relationship with Will and Angie because he was also one of the children from this orphanage. Uh, so like, it, the show is willing to go to some unexpected places and some relationship dramas in the overall framework of what is ostensibly just a weekly network procedural. Uh, it's surprisingly weighty in times. Uh, some of the tonal shifts between some of the you know when you watch these network procedurals, particularly in a post-NCIS environment, they're a little bit jokey in a way that you never quite saw in Law and Order outside of the occasional pithy remark. Uh, this show kind of tries to weigh both elements of, you know, the incredible darkness with like moments of levity sort of through. Well, Sometimes well, it yes, works. I did, I did yeah. get to the, the part in the first episode where he's uh, trying to put the dog up for adoption and they keep pushing the little Betty, the little Chihuahua back and oh. forth on the table. I thought, well, that's a light tone. Look, if you get past that scene, the rest of the show is actually much better. Like, really, that was just unwatchable. That was a very strange bit. To put in after the bloody opening, to have this little yeah. cute sort of bit of physical humour with the with the, the chihuahua is... Um, but like, I mean, it was great to see chihuahuas on screen. I'm all for chihuahuas. Don't get me wrong, dog people. But... Yeah, but, like, this is kind of the thing with the show in that they really do try to make what is a um, cable-ish drama uh, really sort of palatable for a mainstream audience. And it's moments like that kind Like, that's probably the most egregious of the scenes I've seen in all three episodes of the program but even so like there are sort of moments of lightness that don't quite sort of level out with the rest of the program but i kind of remember back to just oh. after the sopranos had become a fairly big deal in the early 2000s there was a lot of efforts by network dramas to try to make themselves more cable friendly like trying to really talk to this mature audience that were migrating away from broadcast it kind of feels like this show is exactly what should have been the case for these programs back in the day they never really quite found a program like this and I kind of feel that the audience for this have definitely moved on elsewhere for their TV viewing. Uh, if you look at the ratings for it, it's certainly performing okay, but I think word of mouth based on the terrible title that the show has, uh, like it's just, it's not quite there. The audience that would be into this program, I think are just lost entirely to broadcast networks at this point. Uh, just two other quick casting things I just wanted to mention. Uh, in the first two episodes, playing the wife of Mark Paul Gosler is Jennifer Morrison 
who people may have seen in shows like Once Upon a Time and certainly a presence on a bunch of things people may have seen over the years. Uh, she's really quite good. But also Sonia Sohn, who was uh, in The Wire for, I think, every season of its run. Uh, she's in this playing the um, captain, the head of the police department, whatever rank that she's currently at. Uh, anyway, she's in, always welcome on my screen. And you okay. know, um, Good cast, good writing. Uh, surprising for a broadcast network drama has some of the trappings of broadcast network drama, but it's good enough to be willing to look past it. Pair this up with Alaska Daily, which I think is a show of increasingly diminished value, but even so, it's still playing in a bit more of an interesting space than we've seen for a few years from these network dramas. So there's a bit of life in the old girl after all. Good to hear. Finally, we get to the film that everybody's talking about. <laughs> Small cough. It's called 65 from Sony Pictures. It's in wide release. There's something alien out there. Location unknown. Charter 373. This is Commander Mills. My ship was hit by an undocumented asteroid. Transporting 35 passengers on a long-range exploratory mission. Okay, Simon, first of all, explain what this movie is, because nobody has heard of this movie. I saw a trailer before maybe Avatar, and I thought sure. it was a parody, because what's Adam Driver doing in a movie like this? I mean, okay. that's probably the first question. Let's get the let's get the plot out of the way because it's a very simple plot. Um, an astronaut, a pilot who is in charge of a whole lot of cryogenically frozen astronaut type people, um, crash lands on a planet that we learn very early on in the film is Earth, and the sixty five of the title is sixty five million years ago. So it turns out that Adam Driver, although being very human like, is actually from a distant planet. Um, and he's got his own issues in a family that he's left on a distant planet, but he has now crash-landed on planet Earth, which on their radar scope is uncharted, and this planet is covered with what he calls alien life forms, which are, in fact, the dinosaurs of our prehistory that we all know very well. So what you basically have is uh, a dude um, and the only surviving passenger, a young woman played by Ariana Greenblatt, who've got to travel 15 kilometres to get to the escape hatch, the escape sort of module, which will send them back into outer, escape, outer space to meet the rescue craft. And that's your movie. So it's a very simple sort of an action-adventure story. It's got ray guns. It's got dinosaurs. How bad can it be? I am here to say that it is not that bad at all. It is actually the sort of movie that we've been talking about over the last few weeks that has largely disappeared from cinemas. It's that mid-level, mid-tier sort of film that unfortunately now either completely disappears under the shadow of much bigger event movies or is compared to the, the, the big event films and is just not seen as being that big or that good. Now, that's two very different things because it's not a big movie. In fact, a movie like this reminded me of things like, and I wrote them down here and I want to get this exactly right. This could have been the Peter Weller film Screamers back in 1995 or the original Pitch Black with Vin Diesel from 2000, which were actually really 
sort of solidly made mid-tier science fiction action thrillers that had smart scripts and committed lead performances, but they weren't huge films. And that's what 65 is. It's really, it's a, completely a two-hander. It's just um, Adam Driver uh, doing all the soldiery things he learnt when he was in the Marines. And Ariana Greenblatt, who doesn't have a lot of words, Greenblatt, I should say, who doesn't have a lot of words because she's from a different part of the planet that he's from and they speak a different language and so on and so forth. So what it does, it just delivers on a very small scale a really pleasing and a really exciting in parts action film that because it's got spaceships and dinosaurs and ray guns, we're meant to think it's another Jurassic Park or another Independence Day or another massive film that is an event movie. And it's not. It's just a comfortable, mid-tier, mid-budgeted film that the studios used to make a lot of and that we don't see anymore. anymore. And that's something that we've spoken of in the past. Um, why they didn't preview it, I don't know. Um, because I know the critics that I run with all would have gone just like me, me, hey, this is pretty good. Um, but, you know, they've probably got their own reason. I don't know if this has opened in the US, so maybe it's a territory thing. They didn't want to have, you know, reviews or, or um, a premiere in another country or something like that. So um, I say give 65 a go in this sort of gap between all the Oscar-worthy Oscar season stuff and the next big American summer films. This is a really entertaining bit of B-movie malarkey that, that does what it has to do. So there so you go. I was surprised too. It's pretty good. I'm pretty sure this has a day and date release with the US. So within the next couple of hours, we should see oh, it. Oh, it does? Okay. Yep. Uh, there's two reviews currently up on Rotten Tomatoes from outside the US, and uh, neither of them are favorable, putting it as politely as possible. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I saw, the, I saw the Rotten Tomato ones, and yeah. Yeah, I, like those have only just gone up in the last few hours because I was looking this morning when I was trying to work out whether I wanted to part with $22 to go and see this movie. <laughs> Look, the, the the effects are all very good. In fact, there was a couple of moments where I said to myself, gee, I like seeing this sort of outer space action and outer space sort of spaceship type of things up on the on the big screen because you don't see a lot of that anymore. Um, and it's made by the two guys, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who uh, wrote the original script for uh, the surprise hit, A Quiet Place. And you can see that they know how to do tense um, small moments in, uh, you know, a genre setting that work really well. And i got to say, Driver, he really puts his heart and soul into this. He's he's very good in this part. He doesn't usually play, I mean, apart from the Kylo Ren stuff in the Star Wars films, he doesn't always lean into that movie star sort of action hero stuff comfortably. But in this one, um, and especially in the scenes that give the film a bit of heart with, with Ariana Grant, uh, Greenblatt's character, uh, he, in fact, they're both very good. So we've mentioned the space sort of aspects of things. Uh, initially, when I saw the trailer, I thought it was a bit more like a uh, Planet of the Apes kind of thing where, you know, there's some space yeah. travel and you sort of ended up. So apparently it's not that because it's some aliens who've landed on Earth. So it's uh, time period appropriate. Uh, how does it stack up in terms of dinosaur films? So the obvious point of comparison is your Jurassic Park films. But if you think about some of the other great sort of classic dinosaur movies, uh, maybe like Theodore Rex, does it sort of weigh up against that particularly well? Well, I mean, that's a very high watermark you're mentioning there with Theodore Rex, mm. so that's hard to sort of compare. Um, I would suggest that the monsters in this, I would refer to them more as monsters than dinosaurs because I'm well-versed in the world of dinosaurs right up into, like, the, in, in, including the current science, which says that they were covered in feathers and not scales and all that sort of stuff. Um, 
the dinosaurs in this one aren't particularly realistic, whereas we can certainly recognise the T-Rex or some variation of the, the, the T-Rex in, in the final scenes of this film. There are moments where I sort of went, huh, either that's a dinosaur I haven't seen or heard of before or they've completely made that creature up. So um, they're convincing, they look great, uh, but whether they're sort of based upon actual fossil evidence that it's it's a whole other different thing to say. So, um, But they are effective on screen as creepy monsters who try to eat people in the jungle. So I'm still not sold entirely on spending my $22 on it. And I know that if I'm going to go and see it, I need to see it within the next week because it ain't going to be in cinemas past this week based on the um, screens that's been provided to it. Uh, so, you know, I'm not sure. I'll let you know next week as to whether I decided to do it or not. I'm probably more inclined to see this than I'm Creed or Scream 6. But look, let's see. Let, let's see yeah. how the narrative goes. Yeah. Can I, just... I, don't know if, I don't know if regular listeners noticed. Sorry, I don't know if regular listeners know. I've completely bypassed Creed 3 as a release. We did mention that on last week's podcast and i haven't been mentioning on this one not because i don't i'm sure it's a perfectly fine film but i'm not going to bring anything to a creed 3 review that's going to sway anybody or be of any interest to either you or me so forgive me if creed 3 is all you're seeing go forth and enjoy yeah uh look theodore rex if i can swing back to that for a moment listens to this monster cast in this film sure. so do people know theodore rex like you you know what it is i know what it is uh this is the whoopi yeah. goldberg uh buddy comedy film where she's teamed up with a dinosaur. Great, yeah. great, great. This cinema. is going to look. This is going to look great when I do the face when I do the Facebook rundown or the YouTube rundown of this episode. I get mm. to mention Theodore X, and nobody's happier than I am. <laughs> look, I mean, I'm just happy to be here in this very moment. But listen to the cast on this; it's pretty good. Whoopi Goldberg, Richard Roundtree, Shaft. Well, not Shaft, but wow. no, no, he was Shaft. Yeah, yeah, Richard Roundtree, Shaft. He was Shaft. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Juliet Landau. Carol Kane was in it. George Newburn, wow. uh, Bud Court, Armin Mueller-Stoll, Stephen McHaddy, Peter McKenzie from TV's Herman's Head. Oh, God, it's just like an all-star cast. Yeah, they had high hopes for Theodore X when it came out. It would just be quite an expensive movie. But um, was it a – I'm trying to think, was it a Henson's – did he do the creature effects for, for Theodore? We should point out Theodore is – as you may have guessed from the title of the film, T-Rex, he's a, Whoopi Goldberg is the police partner of Theodore Rex, who is in fact a walking, talking, living, breathing dinosaur police person. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Theodore Rex, as the very last film written by Jonathan Butel, he doesn't seem to have any credits oh. after that. Okay. Uh, but also he's the person that wrote the film, The Last Starfighter. <gasps> really? Yeah. Of course he is, which I just showed at my Melbourne Film Festival and which I will be showing at the Sydney Film Festival in August. So that's really? interesting. Maybe I could do, maybe I could do a, a Theodore Rex Last Starfighter double. Oh, see, now I'm in festival director mode. That's interesting. If you do that, would that be the first time that Theodore Rex has played on a cinema screen in Australia? I could almost 100% guarantee that. <laughs> if you can promise me a Theodore Rex... If I bring it to Theodore Brisbane, Rex, Last will Starfighter you double it? feature... I will be there. Yeah. Would, would you really? Would you stand up front and say, "Hi, I'm Dan Barrett. I'm here to present Theodore X." Absolutely, one hundred percent. I would do that. I'm going to track it down. So, what's his name? Jonathan Butel. Yeah. That's going to, we, is he still with us? Can I? Do, is it like? Can I do it in honor of? Or so I'm him, looking at, sorry, I'm looking at his IMDb because this is how well planned the podcast is. Uh, he's yeah. down for 2014's Captain America, the Winter Soldier, as the co-founder wow. of Luma Pictures, 
So I suspect that he's really just gone on to like be involved, you know, behind the scenes with some, you know, technology studio work. That's interesting. All right. All right. Well, I could talk all day about Theodore Rex, but we're only really at the middle part of the podcast, so we really should push forward. So here we are at the screen watching middle bit. We call this the middle bit because it's technically in the middle of the podcast. I'm hoping that's not true. Otherwise, this podcast is going to run for two hours. But the screen watching middle bit is this year, uh, this week, focused on the Oscar race. Now, where are the surprises in this year's Oscar race? So it's, it's shaping up as a bit of a landslide night for everything, everywhere, all at once, which has kind of won everything over the last 10 days to two weeks in the award season. Or is it, though, the Daniels award season, darling, is on a roll, but which categories might see a bolter take the big golden guy? Um, I guess this is kind of my segment somewhat. I know you've got a hot take on the Oscars that you want to drop on us in the in the hours ahead. I do just want to point out, I, I, do you think that the everything, everywhere, all at once is the shoe in for Best Picture, Dan Barrett? I've actually felt that, look... It was absolutely one of my favorite films of last year. Mm. And as soon as it started getting a little bit of momentum towards the Academy Awards and the awards were going to take this film seriously as a contender, like I kind of thought it was a bit of a wash for it. Like I was sorry, as in like, you know, it's going to take everything, um, everything, I guess, everywhere all at once. Uh, I'm not surprised that it's got the momentum behind it because I feel that there's definitely been a mood shift with the Academy Awards in the last couple of years. And I don't think that the industry is necessarily caught up to where this is at. So in the last, I don't know, couple of weeks, I've been just thinking a lot about the impact that the Weinstein um, brothers had on the Academy Awards race. So if you look at the mm -hmm. films that were nominated throughout the 1990s, it was very much the sort of films that we lament that we don't see more of, which is mid to upper tier budget films that are about um, serious issues, but, you know, just like weighty humanity. Like it didn't necessarily need to be mm -hmm. something which is like a, you know, uh, something that speaks to... Uh, you know, the issues of the moment. It could be something like Titanic, for example, which is a love story ostensibly set with a bit of tragedy behind it. Uh, sure. There was always like war films in there. There was always films about tragedy and, you know, you got things like say Philadelphia, for example, which is sort of heartbreak uh, yeah. about, you know, uh, physical decline and, you know, the heartbreak is such that. But you also had things like Silence of the Lambs, which are just like these really good high quality mid-tier dramas. But then you get the Weinstein oh. brothers who came through in the early 2000s and they seem to have really upset what an Academy Award film was from that point in okay instead of being these big sort of mainstream crowd pleasers they became something that was like a little bit more about the craft and talking to some of the smaller films of the moment and really trying to propel them forward yeah. and so as every studio is sort of budgeting for what they're prepared to release is like their oscar bid for that year you suddenly sort of film sort of move in a very sort of specific niche direction and i think it's been to the detriment of the industry I think for the last 10, 15 years, there's been lots of people who generally aren't seeing the movies that have been nominated because the films that are nominated are just a little bit sort of smaller and a little bit more, um, I don't necessarily even want to say that they're more artful because I don't know that's actually necessarily true, uh, but they certainly play more to an art house mm -hmm. aesthetic than you probably saw from the films that were nominated prior to that. But in the last couple of years, we've seen a bit of a retaliation away from that. So post the Oscars so wise, he suddenly started seeing an expansion of the... Uh, voting body 
Uh, so it went from, I can't remember what the number was initially, but now there's a couple of thousand people that vote for these movies. And you've seen that reflected in the sort of film, sure. films that are being nominated. It's not these films that would have been traditionally seen as Oscar bait, but instead you are seeing films like Parasite, which is actually a bit of a mainstream crowd pleaser in a lot of ways. I mean, yes, foreign language, but like I think it's one of these few films that really managed to just transcend that and certainly helped out by Netflix with sure. their... Uh, encouragement of people reading subtitles, which is really nice. But then you saw films like Coda, which essentially felt a little bit like the sort of movie you see back in the day, the relationship sort of weepies, uh, something which has been maybe taken over by TV a bit more over the last 15, 20 years than we saw in the sort of mainstream cinema mm -hmm. releases. But, you know, it's certainly different than what we've seen. And so it comes to this year and suddenly seeing everything everywhere all at once up there, it feels like it's of a part with this sort of wave we've seen in the last couple of years. So like, I'm excited to see this. I'm prepared for it to take everything. The only thing that I think is going to upset it at all is Banshees of Insurance, okay, which I think is would absolutely have been the front runner for everything had everything everywhere all at once not managed to break through. Because Banshees of Insurance has everything you kind of expect from an Academy Award nominated movie. But also, you know, I mean, I really quite like that film, which is quite different. Yeah, look, it's certainly it's certainly got a pedigree that that suggests it's an award season favourite. The the um, McDonough who's behind the cameras and behind the typewriter on it is is a terrific writer director and and, did, and showed so with with billboards outside Ebbing. Um, I I the Bolter as we record this is all quite on the Western Front, which I think will upset a lot of uh, some of the more favoured films in the technical categories. I think it's probably going to score a. Uh, cinematography award. Um, I, I think at this stage, everything, everywhere, all at once is the is the best picture winner. Um, and in, in the race for best actress, um, I think Michelle Yeoh is probably going to pip uh, Kate Blanchett at, at the act at the for the best actress award. The uh, Academy voting closed off just a few days after. Michelle Yeoh won the SAG award, and I think that's a great indicator of how the mood is going to sort of, and then more importantly, the, the voting is going to fall for her. Um, the other really close race, and if you'd have asked me, you know, six months ago when The Whale came out, I would have said Brendan Fraser was a shoo-in for the, for the Oscar for Best Actor. Austin Butler as Elvis and certainly Colin Farrell for Banshees of Insurance have all got trophies on their shelf for their performances. So that one's a very tight one. I'm actually going to suggest that Brendan Fraser does end up taking that, but it's going to be a lot closer and I wouldn't be at all surprised if Butler or Farrell get the nod. And then I guess the other most surprising, you know, the, the, the tightest race is maybe the director field. Um, are they going to give it to the two Daniels for their, for, for everything, everywhere, all, all at once, or is this Spielberg's year for the Fableman? They love, the, the, the Academy loves giving awards to films about films, and the Fableman's was, although it sort of stumbled at the box office, it was one of the best reviewed films from the master filmmaker in, in all his career. So th that one's too tight to call. Um, I'd also love to see Ruben Ostlin win it for Triangle of Sadness, which I thought was a fantastic film. But I think Spielberg may take the best director nod. Where does Banshees of Insurance win? Probably the screenplay, I think, is is my tip. Um, I think that's right. It's, and it's probably the, 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 the real bolters, yeah. Yeah. Look, so the category that I'm really interested in is supporting actress. So the yes. thinking at the moment is very much that Angela Bassett's going to get it for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever.
But here's here's the is wild card. Though? I don't know. So, like, yeah. I've listened to a lot of prognosticators, and they seem to think that's where it's sort of heading. But here's the wild card that okay. I think that everybody's ignored. Okay, and this is definitely swinging back into the everything, everywhere, all at once um, stable. So I don't think it'll be Jamie Lee yep. Curtis. So I think that considering where the voting body's at at the moment, if you've got a choice between Jamie Lee Curtis or Stephanie Sue, I think that Stephanie Sue is probably who you end up nominating for that one. It's kind of like that idea of we want to support this sort of emerging actor who we really quite like. But this is the wild card aspect. See, I would go. I would go completely the other way. I would. I would say that I think this is the category in which they often give uh, awards to people who've had amazing careers, and Jamie Lee no, Curtis see, is definitely in that. And no, I think well, the guild, see, the Screen Actors Guild, who are the who are the bulk of the vo those voting for the Oscars, they've given it to Jamie Lee Curtis. So I think, I, I think it's going to be Curtis's. Now that's an argument that happens from being in an Oscars bubble. Here's what you're not keeping in mind. No, no, here's why I think it's the wild card of Stephanie Sue. Okay, so the final round voting for the Academy Awards was between March 2nd and the 7th of March. So there was like a five-day voting period for that final round. Right. Okay, so what happened during those five days, Simon, and what happened during those five days was Poker Face released the episode yeah. with Stephanie Sue in it. Poker Face is that show of the moment, and I reckon there is probably a not insignificant number of people who were sitting down looking at who they were going to vote for, and then suddenly Stephanie Sue was back on people's radar in a way that she hadn't been for the months leading into that. So prior to Poker Face, I would have said like absolutely what you said a moment ago, Jamie Lee Curtis, but I reckon that gives Stephanie Sue a shot in the arm that just would not have existed had it not been for her perfectly timed episode of Poker Face. A shot, not the shot. I don't think Poker Face is going to resonate enough with the Academy voters to take it away from Jamie Lee Curtis. I don't think, I think Angela Bassett is kind of off everyone's radar at the moment. I, 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 there's been, no, no, yes, a lot so, of people would have liked to have seen. So Simon, the reason why Angela Bassett's back on people's radar is that the consensus thought is that in the way that the Academy Awards are never actually nominating the best things, they're always nominating sort of group consensus or awarding people things for roles that they played, like three roles previously, really, and feel that they probably should have received awards for it. The thinking is that Angela Bassett, she may not have been amazing in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, but this would be the award for her because she was good enough in that, but the lifetime award for all the stuff that they hadn't awarded her for previously. So that's the thinking that's got Angela Bassett in there. But I reckon Stephanie Sue. Like, if I was going to put some money down and try to really sort of goose things a little bit and try to, you know, choose that sort of outside pick, that's where I'd be placing my money. I reckon she's the interesting one. I think Australian Mandy Walker is going to win the best cinematography for Elvis, although that is one that could go to all quite on the Western front. Um, where does the blockbuster Top Gun Maverick slot in probably just in the tech categories with all due respect to the tech categories. They're very important, but I think Top Gun will probably take out sound, things like sound editing and, and maybe film editing as well. So can your avatar pull off a win anywhere or are they going to save it for when all five films are out there like they did with Lord of the Rings and give it to the, give it to the body of work? Look, I mean, obviously, Avatar is the best thing that's ever happened to like humanity in terms of the arts. Oh my God's sake! Um, I mean, obviously, without any sort of real question. No, no, like it's not like it's not going to get anything outside of technical awards, and like that's fine. You know, it'll be all right. Uh, the third one will be just as amazing as the second one, if not more so, and then the fourth better again. So it'll have its time. 
I see I see your two films of the year, The Batman and Avatar Way of Water, up against each other for best visual effects. Ooh, oh, I think it, Batman, Batman's Avatar. not going to compete against Avatar for best visual effects. Like, Avatar was revolutionary in terms of what it was doing special effects-wise. Like, there's, there's no comparison. But okay. where, the Bat, where the Batman excelled, I think, was sound design. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a possibly bit of a contender there. But we'll see. I think you might be right. I think you might be right. Anyway, it all happens Sunday night for our US listeners, Monday-ish, Monday morning. What is it, midday or something like that? It happens here on Australian television. I'll be tuning in, maybe even tweeting. I might do a tweet thing. That's always fun to do. Yeah, because nobody ever tweets about the Academy Awards. So, Simon, before we we exit out of this, I want to talk about ratings for it. Because this is really yes. make or break for the Academy Awards yes, this year. Yes, it is. It's a line okay. in the sand moment. Yeah. Yeah. Because as I said, the last like 10 to 15 years, it's definitely been a lot more of the films from the uh, Miramax sort of school of influence that have been really dominating the awards. This year, for the first time in quite some time, you've got a whole bunch of movies that people have heard of before. Things yep. that, and I think streaming plays a big role here as well. A lot of people have seen the advances of Insurin uh, because it's been available on HBO Max for a couple of months now in the US. Everything Everywhere All at Once has been fairly widely available. Tar is available on Peacock, which isn't widely available, but, you know, it's available enough. People have seen it. Uh, Fableman still hasn't been released yet anywhere in the US, I don't think. Uh, But, like, there's suddenly availability of these movies. Lots of people saw Top Gun Maverick. Lots of people saw Avatar. Like, it's the year Mm -hmm. that people have actually seen and have strong awareness of all of these movies. Okay, so the question is, how does it rate... And let me just sort of give some points of comparison. Um, and keep in mind, the TV industry has changed dramatically in the last five years. Uh, people are relying on streaming so much more than they ever have. Uh, people have suddenly been watching less and less broadcast TV with, you know, alarming regularity. Uh, cable sure. TV has dropped quite dramatically. Uh, this year is going to be the year that it drops below 50% penetration in the US. So that's really um, noteworthy. Uh, but here's the other thing. So it's 2019, 29.6 million people tuned in. Mm-hmm. Okay, 2020, 23.6. Uh, the year after that was the COVID train station year, and that was 10.4 million people. And then last year saw 15.36. So the question is, will we see a bounce back to the over 20 million viewership that we've seen previously, or does that not happen? And just another thing to keep in mind as well, this year, Disney Plus are going to be streaming the Academy Awards in I think it was five different territories around the world. This is the beginning of the Academy Awards having less for uh, TV networks around the world to be looking at their investment in the Academy Awards and deciding whether it's worthwhile or not. So if they don't think that's worthwhile spending the money and time rebroadcasting the US Academy Awards, because it does require a fair bit to rebroadcast these things. Okay, so if they decide it's not worth the money to license it, then you're going to start seeing Disney Plus pick it up in more and more markets. But if this rates really, really well, and bear in mind also about US ratings here, that isn't global, okay? Mm. But if suddenly they find an uptick in ratings, you might find that the Channel 9s of the world are more likely to actually stick with the Academy Awards. Otherwise, you are just going to start seeing that just go to a streamer like Disney Plus going forward. So it's really going to change it, and this is the line in the sand year for it. It absolutely is. Um, The last legitimate blockbuster year for the Oscars was the year of Titanic, when something like 65 million people watched it. Um, for the first time, we have a film that has rivaled Titanic at the box office uh, in terms of Avatar. It, I don't know if it's the film Excuse that everybody... Me. Excuse me, rivaled? Oh, God. 
surpassed. Uh, surpassed. All right. Thank okay. You. Surpassed. Um, so hopefully all those that are, I don't know if, uh, Avatar has the, the, um, has captured the hearts and minds of the international population the way Titanic did. It certainly has captured the dollars. And of course, the, the, you know, viewing environment has changed a lot since Titanic came out. So yes, you're right. It's a line in the sand moment as to whether the people come back for it. Um, it's going to be a tough one. It is going to be a tough one. I really can't see how it's, I don't know how it's going to go. I'm really excited to see who does tune in for it and how you interpret it come, come Monday afternoon or, or, or Tuesday. My, my but, guess, it increases, but when it's still not going to pass 2020. So I reckon 2020 had 23.6 million. Um, last year was 15.36. It'll be higher than last year, but I don't think as high as 2020. So let's say like about 20.5 million will do it. It'll definitely be over 20, I think. But let's see on Tuesday and have that chat next week. Wonderful. That was the screen watching middle bit. Um, we put a sting in here. We are now because I've just said it. What else have you been watching, Dan Barrett? Uh, look, what else have I been watching? Great question. Uh, number one, the Chris Rock Netflix special. That was the live yes. special that went out on Saturday night in the US and Sunday afternoon you, locally. You provided some great coverage of that in your newsletter. If you're not getting his newsletter, get it because his daily analysis of what goes down in the world of um, television primarily, but also film is, uh, is fascinating. What are your thoughts on the Chris Rock Netflix experiment? Uh, look, I mean, as a comedy special, it was fine. Uh, the last 10 minutes is all anyone really cared about, which was Chris Rock finally addressing the slap on the Academy Awards last year. Uh, Simon, did you watch this? No, nah, haven't watched it. Not a Chris Rock fan. Okay. Actually, not no. a stand-up fan, to be honest with you, but I'll, I'll probably will check it out. Check out that last 10 minutes, because he just okay. talks about that. Uh, I thought it was kind of masterful in the way that he really use the fact that he hasn't talked publicly about like he has addressed this publicly he's been on stage doing stand-ups like stand-up appearances across the us a whole bunch throughout the year so there has been reporting as to what he had to say he held a couple of jokes back for this and i feel that it was an incredibly brutal 10 minutes i think that he really sort of went to the jugular i think that uh for anyone that was uh, very sort of anti Will Smith behaving that way on stage. It was very cathartic and satisfying watching Chris Rock finally sort of actually tell his side of the story because he hasn't appeared on like Colbert talking about it. He hasn't appeared no. on podcasts around a place. He's kept it all fairly contained. So this is like you a realize, really I think you realized. I think he realized very early that he had cachet now that this that the world would be hanging on his words and he would have had management saying, hey, 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 let's just take this slow and see how we can really maximise this. And obviously he's maximised it into a, a Netflix special. So um, yeah. that's a bonus. Uh, as a live broadcast, uh, there were three elements of it. There was the Chris Rock special, there was the pre-show and the post-show. The pre-show yeah. was garbage. It was just really unwatchable. But the reason why they do a pre-show is because you can't just immediately switch on Netflix as being live and expect people to be there like the second that it starts. What you sure. want is some sort of a thing where people can click into that and start watching the broadcast of whatever it is. And then suddenly when the actual broadcast starts, that they're ready to go. The alternative is having some sort of a ticker or something. And, you know, that's you know a bit lame. They probably should have had a ticker saying that the Chris Rock special starts in five minutes and you can see like a clock at the bottom of the screen moving towards so that. are they gonna do they keep the pre-show now that it goes into like circulation the, the netflix special do they need that pre-show uh you know what i don't think it's there sorry i was looking okay. at it this morning because there was actually an edit that was uh done on the special but when yeah. i went searching for chris rock those uh pre-show and post-show 
programs didn't turn up, which I mean, that's kind of fine. Like there's nothing actually about it that I think sort of has any value beyond the moment. And yeah, All if right. you do a search for Chris Rock, it doesn't come up. So presumably they're gone. Yeah. I'm not sure, but like there was nothing really to them. Like they were fine. The post-show was a little bit better than the pre-show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I kind of feel the one thing missing from the whole experience was I didn't really get a sense of the fact that it was live other than the fact that he fucked up one of the jokes towards the end. Like ultimately it could have been a pre-recorded <laughs> program. Like yeah. they, okay. they needed, I think to show for the pre-show, actually watch the crowds like piling into the venue, do something like that to give a sense of the energy and enthusiasm for that. But that wasn't really there, but an interesting experiment and it'll be uh, very interesting to see the way that Netflix uh, start moving forward with live specials like this and really play around with the format a bit more. And then the other thing I watched was the history of the world part two. I've never seen the oh. history of the world part one. Really? Uh, I, oh, I, I remember it with rose colored glasses. I don't know if it holds up at all. Well, as with much of sort of that mid level um, Mel Brooks stuff, he certainly peaked with his first couple of movies. Uh, I'm, I'm keen to see. See, now I'm completely uh, lost on this because I thought History of the World Part 2 was a movie. It isn't, is it? It's a series. It's a series. So uh, Nick Kroll is the main creative behind the History of the World Part 2. Uh, Nick Kroll, I'm not really a fan of his sketch comedy stuff at all. I don't mind him so much, but, you know, and he's always got his moments. Um, History of the World Part 2 opens with Mel Brooks uh, doing a little intro to it, which was pretty unfunny for the most part. Then they go to a sketch, which is um, Hitler doing ice skating mm. uh, while like TV commentators going over the top of it. None of that was very yeah. funny. And then I lost another that's all, Well, seconds. that's all from the part one. That was all from part one. Hitler on ice was kind of... Ah. It, it, uh, part one finished with our coming attractions and one of the coming attractions was Hitler on ice. Okay, so this is very much picking it up from there. And having not seen part one, I found it bewildering. I didn't really understand why that was there. And <laughs> the sketch didn't work for me at all. Like maybe it works better in the context of it was a silly throwaway gag that I've actually realized now. But yeah, coming in cold, boy, I was not into it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, <laughs> History of the World Part 2, you know, trudge if you dare. I'm going to quickly mention that I have been watching a Netflix series called The Law According to Lydia Poet. Um, it is an Italian series. Actually, I think it's a Greenland series about a, Italy's first female lawyer. She's played by Matilda De Angelis, who is very quickly one of those beautiful women on television, but she's also a very fine actress uh, practicing law uh, in this turn of the century um, setting. Very much a procedural, but one in which the hot new sort of uh, police procedural device is fingerprints. And nobody wants to talk to her because she's a female lawyer. So there's a lot of the, um, uh, in the same week that we've had International Women's Day, this is very much a series about what she faces up against in, in terms of discrimination and bigotry from the Italian law community. Stress once again that she's an extraordinarily beautiful woman. It makes this a very easy show to watch. It's an extraordinarily beautiful show. It's really well produced. It's called, uh, what's it called again? <laughs> I got lost that, would, that would be the law according to Lydia Poet. Um, thank you very much. Let's go to this day in history. Dan Barrett. Yes, March sir. 10, 1983. The final episode of which iconic Australian soap opera screens on Channel 9? March 10, 1983. Okay, if it's the show that I think it is that you're talking about, the word iconic is maybe a little bit generous, but I think you're talking about the young doctors. Oh, I don't think so. 
Oh, well, you would be wrong, my friend. Oh. It was the Sullivans. Oh, okay. Then that is iconic, sure. March 10, 19. That, that is absolutely iconic. March 13, 1997, millions of US television viewers are stunned at footage of mysterious lights over Arizona, a still unexplained phenomenon that would become known as what? So, Simon, I feel this is some nonsense Simon Foster interest stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I've no idea what this is. And also, I'd like you to, once this podcast is done, send me some sort of a um, representation as to exactly uh, like a ratings figure for the millions of US viewers watching this. Oh, I'll do it. Don't worry. I've got that well tucked away. It was became known as the Phoenix Lights, a series of lights that appeared over Phoenix, Arizona, that are still unexplained. They're one of the great UFO phenomena of our modern era. March 15th. This here, Simon. This here. For the video podcast viewers, this is my skeptical face. March 15, 1977. The highs and lows of the Bradford family begin on this night with the premiere of which beloved primetime drama? Well, then I repeat, well, uh, retaliate with a series of questions for you. I've got eight of them. Uh, was one is enough? No. Was two enough? No, it was not. Three? Were three enough? No. Four? Were four enough? No. I think we see where this is going. Five, six, yep. seven. Was eight enough, Simon? Eight is enough. Eight is enough. The show that premiered March 15, 1977. I had such a crush on Diane Kay. She was so beautiful, still is. March 17, 2014. The film clip. For Australian singer Sia's single, boy, that's hard to say, Chandelier makes an overnight star of which former Dance Mums contestant? Now, this is right up your alley, Dan. I expect you to get this without taking a breath. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to take umbrage at the phrase star, but sure, let's go ahead. Who, who is this person? It's Maddie Ziegler, and who will ever forget the incredible dancing she did as part of Chandelier? And who will ever forget the hilarious send-up that Jim Carrey did on Saturday Night Live of Maddie Ziegler dancing in the film clip for Chandelier? So there we go. It's happy birthday time. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. (laughs) This week's birthday buddies have all worked with some famous Hollywood filmmaker. Let me rattle these names off. March 10, 1958, Sharon Stone, March 11, 1961, the wonderful character actor Elias Katias, March 12, 1946, Liza Minnelli, jazz hands. And March 16, 1926, the great Jerry Lewis, that hilarious old misogynist. Um, which of the great Hollywood filmmakers have these people worked for? See, before you gave the additional context as to who that worked for, I thought that you were going to say that each of these four actors have either appeared in a Ninja Turtle movie or Mm -hmm. have appeared in an unreleased movie about being a clown in a concentration camp. But I don't think that's the answers. (laughs) That's not the answer. Do you have the answer? Which great Hollywood filmmaker? (sighs) No, sir. I can't do it. Okay, let's go from the top. If you're looking at the image for the birthday quiz, which you can find on our Facebook page, Jerry Lewis starred in The King of Comedy. Liza Minnelli starred in in New York, New York. Sharon Stone was in Casino. Elias Katias was in Shutter Island. They have all worked with one Marty Scorsese. Hey, Marty, Marty Scorsese. Um, Happy birthday to all of them. They all turn various ages next week because it's their birthday. We're signing off. We're done. We're finished. The segment's over. I I mean, I can keep talking birthdays if you want. I've got thousands. Uh, sure. Uh, let's not though. Uh, let's, let's do the aforementioned signing off folks. Thank you very much for listening. I mean, really thank you. Like you, you gave a lot. 
this has been Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. Find me on Twitter. I'm still on that website. You can find me there at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching, and you find that at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories and the not-so-big stories in TV, streaming, and film. Occasionally, there'll just be a rant about me complaining about the way that people watch cartoons that star dogs. And on Friday, I've got the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which is for supporters of the Always Be Watching newsletter. And in that one, I list the big shows that launched that week. You've done very well this week, Dan Bad. It's been a fine, fine podcast. I'm Simon Foster. You can hear me or see me um, on the Screen Watching page, YouTube channel, talking to uh, famous people from all over the world occasionally. Uh, read my words at screen hyphen space. Go to Facebook page, screen at Screen Watching Podcast, and on the Twitter at Screen underscore Watching. Can I just leave with some advice? Sure. Always happy to hear your advice. You're a wizened old man. I'm always happy to hear what you have to say. So yeah, subscribers to the Netflix.com service will note that the movie Clerks 3 is currently streaming. Uh, now, yeah. I, I reviewed this on one of the episodes of the podcast not too long ago. Unfortunately, as I recall, that episode did not get published for some reason. So my advice, don't. Yes, just don't. Yeah, it's so much worse than you think it is. Don't, don't. So much worse. It really is. It's terrible. It's really awful. Uh, okay, you, mate. Well, listen to the you know podcast. What, Simon? Next, Simon. Simon, you know what? In what the darkness you? of the living room at night, people make some questionable choices. Mm. Uh, the top 10 shows on Netflix oh, in Australia right. today. Number one, Sex Life. Number two, you got Outer Banks and Outlander, which is fine. Number four, Next to Fashion. Yeah. Uh, the Chris Rock Outrage special. Okay. Then there's a Formula One special. Then there's yeah. a dating reality show called okay. Perfect Match, which has no Dexter in it. So therefore, mm. it is... Yeah. unwatchable like you know people make choices yeah. and they're not necessarily the best for them so if i see clerks three on that top 10 movies list anytime soon i won't be surprised but just know people i'll be very disappointed i miss dexter do you think he'll do you think he's an ip component that'll get his own netflix special or some kind of reworking someday the dexter files or the dexter diaries <sighs> sadly people don't know what they've got until it's too late which I think was about 15 years Hi, ago, man. 30. Simon, <laughs> we'll see you next week.